Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lasley. And Mike, we got a little bit of an unusual book today. We spend a lot of our time talking with authors and practitioners uh, and definitely the person in the ring type of thing. But this one, I think, is a little different. Uh, and it's it's going to be really enjoyable. Our our guest tonight is Lee Ellis, United States Air Force Colonel retired. Uh, Lee is a speaker, an author, a consultant, uh, but he was also spent five and a half years as a prisoner of war uh, in the Hanoi Hilton and other areas uh, during the Vietnam conflict. Uh, and tonight we are here to discuss his newest book, which is titled. Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance Stories from Vietnam POWs. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Great to be with you and Mike, and so glad you guys are doing these uh, programs. So before we kind of dive into the book, tell us a little bit about your POW experience, because I think that sets you up for everywhere that you go later in life and the path that your career has taken. Okay. I grew up on a farm in Jordan, North Georgia, plowing mules, and five years later, I was flying supersonic jets, the F-4 Phantom. <laughs> I'd always wanted to fly. I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, but when I graduated high school in 61, there wasn't a lot of ways to find out a lot about it, and so I just went to the University of Georgia nearby and got in ROTC, and uh, I was probably the worst student that ever graduated in four years. But I was a distinguished graduate of ROT, Air Force ROTC, and I had my pilot slot my last two years and uh, had my pilot's license. Uh, by the time I graduated, I went through the flight indoctrination program there. And 53 weeks later, I was, com- I, was, uh, I was already commissioned three days after I graduated. 53 weeks later, I had my assignment said F-4 Pipeline, Southeast Asia which meant I was going to go through combat training, get qualified, and go fight the war, either in Vietnam or Laos. And therefore, I got over there. I went through George Air Force Base out in the high desert in California, Victorville, Apple Valley, which is about uh, almost halfway between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And uh, interesting, you know, Top Gun was filmed out there, just north of there, up near China Lake. And we flew a lot of our missions. Uh, We had gunnery range up there. And we occasionally get in some air-to-air combat with the F-8s uh, flying out of there and go down to San Diego and fly a little air-to-air combat. But it was it was fantastic training, but it was all for a purpose. And quick as we got combat trained, we headed off to war. I got to Da Nang, the 366 fighter wing, TAC fighter wing, the gunfighters, in uh, the first week of July of 1967. And by November... I was on my 53rd combat mission over North Vietnam, and I had another 15 or so over South Vietnam, up in the northern part of South Vietnam, flying close air support for the Marine Corps and the Army, and also some uh, interdiction missions into the Laos, where the Ho Chi Minh Trail had bent around the the DMZ, demilitarized zone, and went around. They didn't go straight into the south. They went around into Laos and creeped into the sides of Vietnam to bring in their uh, soldiers and their supplies. So that's where I was on my 53rd mission. And uh, we were attacking uh, gun sites that were protecting the Quang Key Ferry. And sure enough, uh, we got a lot of uh, 
tracers, a lot of shooting at us. But all of a sudden, as the bombs came off, the airplane just blew up into several pieces, and we were tumbling. The can- the whole cockpit was just bl- blown apart from the wings and the rest of it, I think, and it was tumbling, and I couldn't eject because I was had negative Gs, and my head was up against the canopy, and I knew I had to get out within a couple of seconds. And all of a sudden, a miracle happened. It flipped, and I went to positive Gs, and I pulled that handle, boom, and I was out taking my parachute landing and all the training we had was so good because I knew I had to get out. I had to eject over enemy territory. I was going to die. And then I was trying to slip my parachute to get to the river there. And because uh, it's only about a mile or so from the uh, Gulf of Tonkin, if I could get out there, the Navy would pick me up. But I got captured right away. I did a per- perfect parachute landing fall, by the way. And my partner in the F-4, Captain Ken Fisher, they caught him as before he hit the ground. <laughs> so he didn't get to do a PLF. And then uh, it took two weeks to get to Hanoi, during which time I was bombed and strafed by F-4s and 105s and A-4s. Uh, but we always managed to get into a bomb shelter and watch it happen. And one day I climbed out of a... Of a uh, foxhole. I was in a foxhole. They pushed me down in a foxhole and I climbed out. I watched these four 105s drop their bombs and there was these big old pieces of red hot smoking shrapnel from those 105s laying about 20 feet away in the road there. So it was an amazing story and I'm just hanging on saying, well, I'm still alive. Thank you, Lord. I'll get up there. I got to Hanoi, went to the Hanoi Hilton and stayed there in a six and a half by seven foot cell with three other guys for the next eight months and then went to Sante uh, and spent two years there. We moved out because in 69, they started getting pressure about our treatment and they put together kind of what we called a good treatment prison uh, or a show place camp. And they moved us there in the summer of 1970. And then in the fall of 70, the Sante Raiders came in, raided that camp. And within 48 hours, they took over 300 of us back to the Hanoi Hilton, which is most all of us. And we were locked up there in larger cells. I was in the room three, which was about 1,800, 2,000 square feet with 55. And then it went down to 52 guys for the next almost two years. So it was quite an experience, but, uh, you know, we made it through uh, day by day. And that became our way of life. I think it was our brotherhood, our connection. And being locked up that like that, you really had to become authentic. You couldn't pretend you were somebody that you weren't when you're locked up with people for 24 hours a day for years, you know. <laughs> so uh, I think we came home much healthier than we would have had it not been for them stopping the torture in fall of 69 when Ho Chi Minh died. And they were getting a lot of pressure, so they stopped the torture eh, a little here and there. And occasionally somebody getting beat up, but generally speaking, it was live and let live, and we got healthier before we came home. So that's kind of the short story. Now, before I go on to the uh, the second question here, if my math is correct, you're you're born in October of 1943, and yeah. you're shot down in November of 1967. So you had just turned 24. Is that right? That is correct. And I was the second or third youngest guy that was there more than five years because. Uh, Almost when they stopped the stopped the uh, bombing up north in '68, we didn't get many more after I went down. A few more in early '68, but then we didn't have any more for three and a half years. And I was 
the second or third, depending on which camp I was in, but sometimes I was the youngest guy in the camp, and usually Jerry Bonanzi was with me, and he was four months younger than me. So we were both junior ranking and young. That was a real advantage in a lot of ways because they picked on and tortured the older guys and the senior room SRO, senior ranking officers, and so more on, more than they did the younger guys because they thought they were uh, in control and or might know more, that sort of thing. Now, there are dozens, maybe even hundreds, of, of books about the POW experience in the Vietnam War. There are memoirs and autobiographies and written by historians and journalists. But this one is unique. So I'm going to turn it over to you. What makes Captured by Love a different sort of POW book? Well, I'll tell you how it started out. I kept hearing these romance stories after we came home because a lot of the guys I knew and I knew about their wives and everything and the single guys, I knew some of them, a good many of them. And at reunions, we had reunions every three years and then every two years. And finally, they said, we're getting old. We need to have them every year. So I'd hear these romance stories and I'd meet the wives. And of course, I knew some of these wives had done amazing work to get our treatment changed. And that's a whole other story. But I kept thinking we really, Hollywood couldn't come up with something this bizarre. And this is true. So somebody needs to write a book. So I got, finally, I decided I should do it. And I got a romance writer to help me. And we, I sent an email out to our group and I got uh, a good many re- uh, reactions saying, yeah, well, I'll tell my story, our story. And so we got 20 stories and they're all different, but they're all similar, uh, uh, about a third or 40% Navy and one Army and the rest are Air Force. Uh, most are fighter pilots or fighter pilot crew members. One guy's Army was a lieutenant colonel, one of the senior guys in the northern part of uh, Vietnam, and his helicopter was shot down and he was captured. And he's the only one that escaped twice, but he was captured both times again. Uh, so I kept hearing, and I thought, well, this romance part was so amazing. That's what we need to get. But as we got into it, it really, uh, we put the, some of the wives' stories and what amazing leadership they had done and changed the policy of the U.S. government and changed the policy of the communist government. They weren't abiding by the Geneva agreements and um, POWs and, that they had signed, and they got them when Ho Chi Minh died to quit torturing us and treat us more humanely. So the wives did a fantastic job. The families, my I was single. My parents were very involved in that, my mother especially, uh, and my sister-in-law and brother. So that was another big thing that kind of came out in the book is what the powerful role of these women was. This is, this is the late 60s and early 70s, you know. Women were just starting to step up and take on uh, the men, so to speak, and they did it in a fantastic way. The State Department, the DOD, and uh, even the present, I have pictures in that book of uh, Sybil Stockdale and Phyllis Galani, and on our POW Romance website, they're meeting with President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger, telling them how important it is for them to get us out of there and not to quit the bombing until they can have it make it happen. So anyway, the stories, so the book has some, a few stories in every story, there's a little bit of POW stuff and there's a little bit of uh, wives stuff or if it, some of the guys were single, uh, married, uh, a lot of them married uh, 
what was called stewardesses back then, flight attendants now, because we'd see them when we traveled. And they had to be young, single, and good looking to be a stewardess back then. You couldn't be married. You couldn't be older. You had to be 32 or younger. So a lot of us dated uh, these stewardesses, flight attendants, and a lot of guys married them. I dated a whole bunch of them, and they were really nice and good looking, but they weren't the right one for me. And I was probably the last bachelor to get married because I dated all these girls. And finally, I went back to Moody as a T-38 IP. And I hadn't been there but about five or six weeks. And I went to the officer's club one night and was sitting there at the bar talking to a guy. And I saw these two girls walk in. And I said, I'll see you later, man. I'm going to go ask her to dance. <laughs> and that was Mary, <laughs> the one. And that's the last story in the book is our story. So it's got, I think... One of the things that comes out of this book, and the POW story and the wives story is about resilience. And we so need that in our culture today, in military especially, we need resilience. And how being together with a team who's going through something that you're going through makes all the difference in the world. In the POW camp, that really saved our lives. It brought us home healthy because we were suffering together. And, you know, no matter how much you suffered, there was always a guy over here had been there a year or two longer as a POW than you have. And he's been tortured more than you have. You've got, especially when you've got guys, 52 guys in a room. It was just amazing, you know. And, and the wives back home were going through a lot of bad stuff. The families, my parents. And yet they've had people who came around them and related to them and encouraged them and made them feel valued and important. And that's how they got through it too. So that's a crucial message for our culture today is being connected um, with empathy, people who have empathy for you, who are caring about you, who are authentic. You know, you touched on this a little bit, but it's something that really jumped out at me in the book is, you know, and, and Brian said that we've read a lot of POW stories before and they're all important um, but seeing the two different perspectives here, the the person who's in the theater and also the people back home, mm -hmm. uh, seeing those two stories juxtaposed next to each other the way that you did was really powerful and in a way that I hadn't really seen before. The The way that the people at home did not know what was going on all the time, they didn't have information about whether their people are okay or even if they're alive or not. Mm -hmm. um, I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. And this is something that comes out in a lot of the stories you have in the book is dealing with that uncertainty, but also like you mentioned, some of the lobbying efforts they had um, to kind of, whether it's getting more information or, or to keep working to, to get the release of POWs. Can you, can you elaborate on some of that, both the feeling of uncertainty, but also those lobbying efforts that were being done back here at home? Yeah. You know, sometimes the thing about uncertainty is you have to believe. Henry Ford said, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're probably right. <laughs> and you have to be positive. And the, in that Leading with Honor book I did in 2012, that came out in 2012, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, that's chapter one, or, or rather, actually, sorry, take that back. It's about chapter three or four, but you have to stay positive. And our leaders in the POW camp helped us stay positive. They stayed positive, even though they were tortured the most, and they spent four years or more in solitary confinement. Now, we did have covert communications with them a good bit of that time, but staying positive was so critical. And with the wives and families back home, 
they had to stay positive and believe that someday he's going to come out of there. He's going to hang in there. He's going to be okay. He's going to survive and he's going to walk out of there and I'm going to be here for him. And, uh, but I need to do my part to fight to get them to treat them in accordance with the Geneva Convention, Geneva Accords about treatment of captured uh, prisoners. Now, one of the things I want to highlight here is that there, there are 20 stories, but they are by no stretch of the imagination the same 20 stories just told from a different perspective. This is not a book that is, uh, and there's certainly some of this in there, but not every story is the wives patiently waiting at home for their, their husbands to return. There's, there's pain, there's loss, there's divorce, there's guys that, that come home to find that their, their wives did not wait for them. So mm-hmm. talk about how you and the POW community chose what to include in these pages. You know, I think uh, we, wanted, we wanted to hear their stories and we wanted to hear the good, the bad, the ugly uh, as much as we could. And I think because they knew that people were going to read this book, that they were sharing it freely and openly about what they went through. You know, one of the gals, her husband was shot down and he was MIA for almost six years and uh, he didn't come home. Marine helicopter pilot. And uh, she kept hanging in there and she did some incredible work with movie stars and Governor Reagan of California. And so she was at the uh, Dallas Salutes program in uh, first week of June of 1973, right after we came home. And there was a POW Navy uh, A-7 pilot there just happened to be sitting next to her. And they both had dates just for the event. Somebody took them. She was uh, still suffering from her loss of her husband because she had only found out a couple of months earlier. And Tony Orlando and Don are on the stage in the Cotton Bowl with 30,000 people there. Tony Orlando and Don are singing the song Yellow Ribbon. And he looks over at her and he sees these tears coming down her face. And he leans over and he puts his hand on her arm and gives her a kiss on the cheek and shows her empathy. Well, they started talking, and then they started dating, and then they got married, and they've, they he's about 88 or 89, and she's about 84, and they've been married for 48 and a half, 49 years now, and they've had a fantastic marriage. And so that's just one story of how people that, and part of what brought them together was they were both suffering. He was suffering because when he came home, his wife told him, I'm out of here. I'm divorcing you. And they didn't have any kids. And he was hurt by that. But he says, you know, I was so disappointed, but I was also free. And that really excited me to be free again. And I knew that I had a life ahead of me. And then all of a sudden, I haven't been home but six or eight weeks. And here I meet this gal and she suffered. And we have a lot in common, (laughs) you know. And they became companions and got married. You know, it's amazing how the lessons that came out of those stories were similar to leadership lessons. They're life lessons. You have to be committed. You have to have character to be trustworthy. You have to have a companionship and relationship with people around you. Uh, There's just so many good uh, principles there that came out of those stories. And by the way, we have, I think it's three, uh, almost all of them have three love lessons at the end of the chapter, and I kind of combine them and, and synchronize them at the end. 
Yeah, you do a, a really interesting job of of including a lot of you know pieces throughout this book, like the little inserts of different themes to draw out some things from the stories, which I think is really helpful and really interesting. And I like also how so many of these stories are told in everyone's own words. Yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. they wrote it themselves or it's a transcript of them talking, which is really adds to some of the power of, of these stories. But one of the other things that you add uh, are, are what you call historical insights kind of peppered throughout the book. You've got these uh, kind of historical context and it's different themes. And can yeah. you talk about why you included these and also how you chose what historical context to include? You know, uh, that just hit me that the younger people reading this are not going to know anything about the war. They're not going to think about what the wives went through. And so I initially called them nuggets. And I said, you know, what we need to do, and, and a couple of people, uh, Greg Godek, who was a, the co-author with me, everybody said, now, don't make the introduction too long. You know, that'll wear people out. So I shortened it down and summarized the war, the men, the women for the introduction. And I thought, well, they need this information. And I thought, well, I'll just put a, a one-page nugget between each chapter. And then I made a list of possible nuggets and kind of sorted them out. And I got about half of them are POW nuggets of what happened, what the POW camps were like, what the treatment was like, how we had a Hanoi University. We got educated up there. Uh, no books, but we had so many educated people that you could study Spanish, French, Russian, or German every day and, and get fluent in. I got fluent in Spanish and French and had a 2,000-word vocabulary and no books. <laughs> but uh, anyway, putting those nuggets, and we call them historical highlights or something like that, and uh, all of them are one page except for two where they have pictures, and one is about the torture of the POWs, and we have some Mike uh, McGrath graphics in there showing the POWs being how they were tortured. And the other one is on the camps, and we had uh, some graphics of the different POW camps. And so those two are two pages, but the rest of them are one page uh, uh, between each chapter. Now, it's interesting that you mention, you know, maybe a younger generation who is not as familiar uh, with the Vietnam conflict. And, and we're getting to the point where it's now the, the children of the children uh, yeah. who, who are getting old enough to, to learn about this. And so I think when you talk about these historical nuggets, it, it made me think, you know, anytime you write a book, and Mike and I have both gone through this, the press will ask you, hey, who's the audience for this book? Who do you think is is going to read it? Uh, so that's kind of my question to you. Uh, you know, we've had air power personalities, we've had authors, we've had astronauts, but this is, again, something kind of unique. So when you were putting this together, what did you view as the audience for this book? Well, I have I've done that because I've written other books and I'm not good at that because I start thinking about this. Oh, yeah, this group will like it. This group will like it. But I knew that people who were veterans and especially the older veterans in the Vietnam era would would probably enjoy reading it. And then I thought, well, you know, when they read it, they're going to think, you know, my son and his wife, they would enjoy this. And now my grandson and his wife would enjoy this. They need to read it and see these love lessons because people, uh, marriages with the, the new generations now, marriages are almost everybody's been divorced. You know, when, when we came home, the average divorce rate was close to 50%. And that's what about what ours was, or the POWs was when we came home. But now it's much higher than that. And, uh, 
I think seeing what people go through and how they're, you make that commitment. You know, a lot of people now, I'm going to test marriage out and see how it works. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to walk away. But that's not the way marriage has always been in our culture. It's always been a long time commitment. And that's what was so strong about these stories. Almost every person I know who came home that stay, had stayed married when they came home, still married 60 years, more, 65 years, or the ones who got married when we came home are all still married. I know very few people who divorced after a year or so from coming home. Very few are divorced. And so that to me, that's a pretty important thing for the younger generation to read. Now, uh, I will tell you this. Guys read that book and they they've told me, they said, well, you know, on that, I'm not a big romance reader, but on one page I'm laughing, the next page I got tears coming down because that's how emotions in this book kind of go back and forth from uh, funny, exciting to sadness, and then right back to funny, exciting, right back to sadness, which is kind of uh, keeps them engaged, I think. This is a little bit of a random question, but it- Brian knows a little bit about my background. He might know why I'm asking this. But one of the things that came out in many of these stories as I was reading through them was the role of music. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have a background in music. I love music. Um, and that really jumped out at me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how important music was uh, in some of these stories to to you and some of the people that you knew going through this. Well, I don't. Uh, I tried out. We, we had... Uh, in, our, in that big room where I was for almost two years, we had some um, great musicians in there, great singers, all the different levels of singing. Uh, I tried out for that, and he said, Lee, I don't think this is your best talent. And I said, eh, I know it's true. I don't carry a tune well. But everybody would be humming and thinking about going back over the words. A lot of people do understand the words, and they remember the music, and it would put them in a situation where they could picture themselves that was kind of a good scene and thinking back and help them relax and that sort of thing. Uh, but in, in my cell, we had Bill Butler, who was just an incredible musician, uh, fighter pilot, and he was our leader of our choir. And after teaching us music, he also decided to do the uh, South Pacific uh, a musical, and he got these guys together and they went over it and practiced and put, performed a musical in that cell uh, one night. And it was just amazing. And people just loved it. So music is an important part. I'll tell you, the other thing is humor. Humor was even more important than music. You've got to laugh and you got to be willing to laugh and, and everything and everybody. you got to be willing to be laughed at. you got to laugh at others and you got to just look for ways to make humor because humor lifts your spirits and takes you away from anger and bitterness and all that. And it was really helpful. Yeah. I think this is going to be the first podcast where, where I mentioned that if you have not listened uh, to some of these songs, so if you've not listened to uh, tie a yellow ribbon around the old Oak tree by Tony Orlando and Don, or if you don't know, Johnny Mathis Misty song, which is where Bud Day got the name for the for the yeah. outfit, the Misties. Maybe you should go and and listen to those. Now, Lee, I've I've read your other books, Leading with Honor, Engage with Honor, uh, and so there was it was no surprise to me 
to find homework in, in the back of this book. Uh, <laughs> tell us just a little bit about your, your other books, your, your thought process, and then uh, along with Captured by Love, what you hope people get out of them. Well, in the other books, the leadership books, I try to summarize every every chapter has one major principle. And then at the end of that, I have three or four questions that help you focus on that principle in your work, your life, and then uh, a little bit of coaching to go with that in every chapter. Well, uh, in this love book, I thought, you know, and this was not in my idea to start with, but as we read it and I, we had it done and everything, and I said, you know, we got to bring out some love lessons here. And so I, I summarized the love lessons from all the chapters into seven love lessons and one other one that was kind of not a love lesson, but uh, about trust and then put those together. And then I added a chapter on a relationship comparison report because I know that whether it's at work or at home or with your children, people are different. Those are kind of lessons that can really help you in a marriage when you're you're expecting the other person to act like you and they're not going to act like you. You know, I think that one of the most important things out of all this was the POWs came home. We believed in ourselves. We knew we weren't perfect. We knew all of our, most all of our faults. And we had lived with other people and they'd seen ours, we'd seen theirs. And we believed in ourselves and we were committed to continue to grow and learn. And so we didn't have to have uh, to be perfect. We weren't shamed. We got over our shame and guilt. We got over our bitterness and against the enemy, and we came home very healthy. And so we were able to give love and give encouragement to our wives in a very special way. And I think that's why we take good marriages. Uh, So the book is Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance Stories from Vietnam POWs. And as I mentioned, uh, it is definitely something that is unique for the program. But if you are an air power historian, you would enjoy it. If you are a gender, social historian, uh, if you're new to a relationship, or if you've been married for decades now, uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, There's something kind of enjoyable in there for everyone. So Lee, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Brian and Mike. Good seeing you guys. And one other thing, if you go to the website for that book, powromance.com, you can download the first 50 pages of the book, you have two stories there. And also you can see pictures and uh, media links to all these guys and gals. So it's kind of a, an adventure on its own. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the book. And speaking of websites, uh, Brian, where are you at online these days? Uh, so I'm, well, this is going to be interesting. I'm on X, uh, which is the <laughs> website formerly known as uh, Twitter. Uh, still hanging out over there. And you can also find me at brianlastly.com. Mike, what about you? I'm at mwhankins.com as usual. And all of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which is on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please feel free to send us an email or submit an article for publication at balloonstodrones.com slash contact. Thank you all. And we will see you next time.